This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen from Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and I want to thank you for joining us again today. You know, we cover a lot of topics here at Ringler Radio, mostly about the legal settlement industry, the structured settlement industry, and you can find all the Ringler Radio shows on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. Well, we recently had a show that discussed how personal injury victims can evaluate their financial settlement decisions. And uh, the show outlined how these victims are really part of what we call a unique investor class. In fact, if you'd like to find that show on the website, it's entitled Personal Injury Victims as a Unique Investor Class. And I think that was a a really good show, and you might want to tune into that because we're going to follow up on what we talked about there here today. We're going to expand uh, on that conversation to discuss an area of finance that's getting increasing attention among academics and practitioners. And that area is called behavioral finance. And to help us understand all that, we have with us once again Bill Wakeley of Ringler Associates in Philadelphia and Dr. Christopher Coyne of St. Joseph's University, also in Philadelphia. So, Bill and Chris, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Thanks, Larry. Thanks. Good, guys. Uh, you know, Bill, in our last show, we talked about the issues involved when personal injury victims need to make decisions about their financial future and how they deal with those critical decisions. You know, money's coming into their lives. What are they going to do with it? How are they going to what, – what avenue are they going to choose? Uh, Bill, tell us a little bit about that aspect of it all. Well, that's right, Larry. I mean, basically, last time we, in our last show, we talked about how these personal injury victims really need to be looked at as, as a unique investor class unto themselves. They're unique only, not only because they're facing tough investment decisions like, like the rest of us are or the rest of the marketplace are, but they're facing those decisions at, at, a, at an emotional and physical disadvantage as a result of their injuries. They're, the risk-reward dynamic is totally different from other investors, which, which obviously is why they're unique. Mm-hmm. You know, we spend most of our time, you know, talking about traditional finance, you know, which assumes, uh, as we'll talk about it, you know, as the show goes on, it assumes that most people behave rationally. It talks about how people should behave to preserve and maximize their wealth under, you know, normal circumstances. Well, Chris, that is interesting about this concept of traditional finance, uh, why don't we talk now about what we call behavioral finance? Tell us what that means, and that's that's a topic and, a, and, a, and an issue that you're really involved with. So tell us about behavioral finance. Well, behavioral finance deals with what academics have seen people do in, instead of what people ought to do. Um, rational economic theory tells us that people act in a certain way, that we, for example, always choose more rather than less, that we uh, would always act in a selfish fashion rather than a, a selfless or unselfish fashion. But yet we observe people doing the exact opposite all the time. And finally, somebody sat down and said, something's going on here. What's the problem? This, this does not seem to follow the dictates of what we call 
rational economic man. So behavioral finance attempts to study and understand what it is that motivates people to make decisions as they make decisions rather than as they ought to make decisions. That sounds like you and I, Larry, rational men. Well, based what, uh, upon what I've seen lately, uh, Bill, we may be the only two rational men around now. <laughs> Chris, when academics uh, get involved and talk about rational behavior, obviously the, the opposite of that is irrational behavior. Tell us about the irrational behavior model. Well, I, you know, I, and I really hate that term irrational because it, it, it doesn't really describe what happens. Uh, what's an example of what they would classify as irrational behavior? Uh, I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we've, say, had a, a, a bridge that, that has one lane for crossing. So traffic can only go in one direction at a time. Mm-hmm. There's a yield sign at one end of the bridge. So it's pretty clear who has the right of way. And yet routinely we see people give up the right of way to allow the other cars to come ahead. You know, like they... They're the fifth car in line. They've seen that people have been waiting. The line on the other side's backing up. So they stop. They give up their position, stop, and let the others come ahead. That violates rational economic concepts because you're acting selflessly rather than selfishly. And they would categorize that as irrational behavior. Well, well, well some people might call that irrational behavior. Wouldn't other people call that good manners? <laughs> They might. <laughs> <laughs> Let the other guy go first, maybe. But I, I, the point is that any time you see people giving up the right of way, allowing somebody to, to get in front of them in line, something like that, mm-hmm. that would be categorized as irrational behavior. And, and we actually observe people engaging in these kinds of actions. Hmm. And as a result, what that means is that people do not always operate according to what we've all come to understand as the tenets of rational economic choice. Well, how does this all relate to the area of finance and making financial decisions? Bill, have you thought about all that? Well, you know, Larry, as Chris said earlier, when we look at financial decisions, whether it be, you know, from an academic standpoint or a professional standpoint, we look at the various economic and financial models like modern portfolio theory, asset pricing theory, those types of things. We make the assumption that people will do what makes the most economic sense to them, given a certain set of assumptions or a certain set of facts. Now, we always talk to our finance students about the risk-return concept and Mm -hmm. how to analyze it and how to make decisions based upon it. That's our traditional base in finance. That's where where all our thought process leads leads from and to. And now you have people that spend their time on, on due diligence on an investment decision. They know their facts. They look at the risk and return involved. They conclude a choice of investments that that might seem very obvious in the tr- traditional sense, yet they make a completely different decision, You know, one fraught with uncertainty or risk because they had a hunch or they felt lucky or they took a hot tip from somebody they just met. There's a whole host of reasons why people may veer off what we consider traditional economic you, you just described me to a T, by the way. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of hot tips in my portfolio. Well, Chris, tell, tell us, you know, expand on what Bill's talking about, uh, this concept of risk-return versus irrationality. Well, actually, the risk-return mantra, as it were, uh, is the kind of thing that, that we, we is really a behavioral finance aspect. 
if, if people were interested in getting more rather than less, they would always make the choice about the biggest promise. But we don't because we recognize there's another side to it. The, the difficulty, I think, that, that a lot of people have in understanding the decision process that we're exploring here, and it's going to get a little technical, is that economic theory really says that people maximize utility. Difficulty we have with that is how do you define utility, how do you measure utility, how do you do all these things? The easiest choice was dollars. So everything became a function of maximizing dollars. The more dollars, the better. Solves your problem, utility goes away, and we just focus on dollars. Mm -hmm. Behavioral finance is actually rediscovering this whole idea of utility. What's utility? I know you were going to ask that, Larry. <laughs> I'll save you the time there. There you go. Thanks for asking. What's utility? Utility is actually a whole bundle of things. Uh, the weather's been bad. It's been winter. And finally, you get one of those days where you get the break in the weather. And, and, and you decide that you've just been cooped up enough, and today's a really good day to roll out the sunroof, you know? Mm -hmm. So you go driving along in maybe 50-degree weather with the sunroof open because the utility the benefit that you derive exceeds the cost associated with driving around in 50-degree weather with the sunroof open. Well, you're speaking about 50 degrees right now. It's about 15 below where I'm sitting, so I'm not going to have that difficulty today. But, uh, but, but I will, soon. Yeah, absolutely, but soon. But, but you know, it's interesting. We talk, we're talking about behavioral finance and, and these risk-return analyses and how the, the rational man might act and then how sometimes they don't act so rationally. But we really can't underestimate in this process, can we, the influence and impact of a really good sales pitch. I mean, somebody might be a rational person, but, but in, the, in the context of hearing a, a salesperson give them a, a point of view, it, that really can direct them to something totally different than what either a rational or an irrational decision might have might have given them. Is that true? I mean, where does all that salesiness come into the process of how people make these decisions? You know, that's again a very interesting uh, question. Um, it's possible there's there's something in behavioral finance called framing, and framing has an awful lot to do with our approach to decision making. An example of framing would be. Uh, hearing about this uh, study in medicine where uh, 60 out of 100 people in this study died. Well, if you frame this a different way and say 40 out of 100 people in this study survived mm -hmm. as a result of taking this medicine, the perception that you have about the process in the study is very, very different. Mm-hmm. That's what framing is all about. So when you talk about a sales pitch, it's, it's a question of framing. But even with the framing situation, someone may simply have a utility that even goes beyond the framing that exists in the sales pitch. It is possible for somebody that just has this particular utility event that is so strong and so powerful that it supersedes everything else, mm -hmm. which is really what behavioral finance is about. That's the whole point. It recognizes that those types of events do, in fact, occur. And when we start to think about this behavior, 
we're not just talking about small financial decisions. A lot of the things that Bill and I get involved with in the structured settlement, uh, you know, arena with these claim settlements are oftentimes big, very important, life-changing decisions that are made. And and it's important, I, I would think, that, that the rational approach would be the best approach for an individual to take. Are you seeing uh, a lot of irrationality because of, let's say, sales presentations? Are you seeing irrationality because of uh, points of view that are expressed during the course of someone's life? Or how, how does the, someone get to that point of saying, this is the right choice for me to make? Typically. People don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Typically, people find themselves in a situation and there are really a, a raft of events, circumstances, emotions, and other things that take over and create the decision that is made, even large ones like the ones you're talking about, mm-hmm. without the kind of rational thought that we'd like to believe goes into it. It's such a very strong element uh, in our decision-making process. Well, Chris, I, I remember you talking about a, what you call a prime decision-making rule uh, that human beings operate under called the NPV rule in finance. Right. Uh, well, what is that all about? Well, NPV rule says simply, really, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure people have heard, marginal cost, marginal benefit. You know, mm-hmm. That's really what it is. In other words... I'm going to choose always, this is always true, I will always choose that event that gives me a benefit that exceeds the cost associated with that event, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Uh, I talk about transactions all the time. What's a transaction? Actually saying hello to somebody is a transaction. I'm sure we've all been in situations where you've, past a colleague who said hello to you that you did not respond back to. It's because I can't remember his name, usually. It's possible. <laughs> but the point is, you, you still could have responded had you chosen. You could have mm-hmm. still, hello, whatever. You consciously choose not to. Why? Because the utility from not responding exceeds the benefit from responding. Something that simple is, a, is an NPV marginal utility decision. Mm -hmm. We always make the decision that at that moment we believe is in our best interest. Always. Is that why the individual on the one-lane bridge gave up his right of way? Yes. Do you know why? So they can feel better about themselves. They can feel that they have, again, as you say, been civil, been Mm -hmm. courteous. Mm -hmm. And they prize that very, very much. And at that moment... They don't have to, to rush home to get the kids, you know? They don't have to rush home to, to make dinner. So at that moment, they can relish in their ability to give up this right. Because a lot of people see this, you know, the other people on the other side, people around them. People observe this person being magnanimous. Yeah, he's a good guy. That's exactly right. He's a good right. guy, even though there's no price. There's no, there's no value, dollar value to what that's been yes. done, but it's simply uh, Precisely. In- internally. Precisely. And that's really where this is all about. That's what I said. That whole thing about basing it on dollars has just taken this to an extreme where it it does not exist and it does not belong. This is a much more ephemeral type of situation. So, Chris, that gets gets us back to to, to something I mentioned earlier. When somebody goes through the the due diligence process, and, and, and again, we're getting back to an economic decision or a financial decision, they go through the, the due diligence process, they do the research, 
Uh, and that may be over, as Larry said, in our business, a period of months, sometimes years, until some of these cases come to fruition and, and ultimately they have to make a decision on what to do with their settlement dollars. And, you know, they could go through this process for a long period of time, and when it comes to decision time, they could be going through one of these situations where, you know, what, what looked like a net present value decision six or eight months ago may not look that way now. Well, it's still a net present value decision. It's just that the utility has changed. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the point. I, I tell you what I, I tell my students all the time. Do you know how people buy cars? People do exactly what you just said, Bill. They'll go out, they'll do the research, they'll do the car facts, they'll get all the information, they'll come to the dealer with sheaves of paper, and then they go and buy the car they want. Right. That's got correct. nothing to do with that. It's the car that they look good in. It's the car that they want. It's the car that's cool. It's, it's the SUV, you know. It doesn't matter. They can do the research. That's not what the decision is about. Mm-hmm. But if we, Chris, if we as as academics or professionals understand that these behaviors go on, number one, and, and number two, understand a little bit about why they go on, that can certainly give us some insight into how these decisions are made. And, and also the fact that this is what you can anticipate in terms of a decision. You know, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I, I was really excited about the show. What this enables us to do is to provide your audience with another piece of information to give them a better understanding of what they'll encounter when dealing with their clients and that the presentation need not, probably should not, be a mere rational one because that's not where the decision is being made. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the primary piece of information coming out of this conversation that, that yeah, this is what we're taught, this is what we're trained, this is my presentation, this is all the good, solid, sound, fundamentally economic, rational decisions for doing this. And when the person finally says, no, I don't want that, you're standing there scratching your head wondering what that was all about. Well, we do that all the time. We, you know, build, you know, Anyone in our business, from time to time, a case cashes out or doesn't, they don't, they don't accept a structured tax-free settlement. They do something different. And we always tend to say, why would someone ever do that? Why, why would they make that choice where they're going to probably dissipate the funds sooner than they wanted to or ever thought they would, and they're going to eventually pay taxes on the interest they earn? Why would they make that decision in lieu of what seems more rational, which is the structured settlement? And oftentimes it's because of some of the issues you talked about, you know, the irrationality of how they just want to act, but, but many times it's because the financial advisor on the other side, the so-called sales individual is giving them some direction, giving them some ideas that move them in that direction. And it's really, a, it's really almost a function of competing sales pitches, as I would call it, that somehow ultimately makes this decision uh, happen. Exactly. And I think, Larry, you, you hit the nail on the head there with, uh, with you know, the, the type of individuals that we deal with. Um, I think that this kind of behavioral finance may come into play even more so with them because of all the emotional, physical, and every every other kind of situation that they're going through at the time of the settlement leading up to, to where they come across us in the decision-making process. Yeah, there are an awful lot of factors that go into the uh, kinds of decisions that are made around our, uh, the cases that we deal with. And, uh, Professor, I think you're bringing up some excellent points here that we should all consider about the rational versus irrational man, and maybe some of us should be talking to these uh, clients 
a little bit differently than we seem to be doing today. Exactly the point. I mean, as I keep saying, it's not a question that sometimes these aspects enter the decision. It's the fact that they always enter the decision. Interesting. That's really what it comes down to. Well, let's take a short break right now, but when we come back, Professor Coyne is going to tell us a little bit about some studies on behavioral finance that uh, he knows about and actually has been involved in. So let's take a 60-second break. Ringler Radio will be right back. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975... Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen here in frigid New England, uh, talking with my colleague, a Ringler Associate Bill Wakeley, and Dr. Christopher Coyne from St. Joseph's University, who are both down in sunny, warm Philadelphia. Is that right, guys? It's a balmy 50 degrees. I'm in my shorts. <laughs> there you go. Well, we've been talking about behavioral finance, a uh, very interesting topic. And, Dr. Cohen, you're really one of the experts in this field, and you've been involved in looking at a lot of the studies that have been going on, and I, I even understand that some very impressive Nobel Prize winners have even been involved in this area. Tell us about the studies and what they're showing. Well, they're, they're, again, this is receiving an awful lot of uh, current topics in, in the field of finance, finance research. Uh, you're, you're right, the, one of the more recent uh, awardees for the Nobel Prize in economics went to uh, Kahneman, who is actually a psychologist, but the field of study that he did rolled over into economics and finance, and uh, his, his work with uh, his colleague who died, uh, Tversky, mm-hmm. uh, has been kind of the... the Ground, the groundswell of, of the process there, you know, in terms of, of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've discovered a number of, of different behavioral aspects. Um, we talked about framing earlier in the show. That's mm-hmm. one of the, the issues that they discovered. 
there's something called the endowment effect, which is the, the tendency for people to value something they possess much more than if they don't possess it. What does that mean? You know, a good example is, is a home in today's market. A lot of people don't understand that the market has dropped. What they see is that six months ago, um, their house sold for, or their house, a similar house sold for more. Um, th- the fact that they own the house automatically gives it greater value. Mm-hmm. Anchoring is another. Anchoring is something where much more, the example that I, I talked about before, they simply grab on to a base value for comparison. And for whatever reason, that's the value on which they're going to make future decisions. It, it may have absolutely no validity, but it's immaterial because it's what they grabbed onto, and it became the base level, their starting point, and they're not going to deviate from that. Well, you know, taking it back to, to the field that we're all involved in here, which is injury claimants typically that are getting large sums of money uh, and have to make a decision about what to do with those funds. And those funds typically uh, are going to be there for quite a while. So we're talking about long-term financial decisions, not short-term ones. Do these studies talk about that? Do they do they indicate that long-term financial decision-making is maybe the toughest thing for people to deal with, or, is, or are there some other issues? Well, we talk about in finance, we talk about the, the discount rate. You know, the rate at which you're going to take future income, whatever, mm-hmm. and bring it back to today. The studies have indicated that people use very high discount rates when considering future events. What does that mean? The relationship between present value and future value is inverse, meaning you have a large future value, you use a, a high discount rate, you're going to produce a very low present value. Producing a low present value We're means, familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, but see, the point is that what that means is that people don't really place a lot of credence in tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what this comes down to. So they're much more immediate and temporal in their decision-making than they are really long-term and thinking about the future and, and the consequences. So in that respect... Yes, it comes into play very dramatically. Another really simple thing is um, in the structured settlements, I think we talked about this even the last time, people are actually receiving more money than they've probably ever seen in their lives. And they have this sense of wealth. And they seem uh, unable to recognize that this does, in fact, have to produce a lifetime of income. Well, you know, the, also the impact of inflation on, on monies into the future are what sometimes, uh, you know, draws people to, to step back and really be concerned. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we provide, for example, in some of these annuities, these compounding uh, right. effects to take care of that. But, you know, people are constantly, you talk about behavioral issues, they're constantly barraged by, by different studies, like these studies. And, and one study would, would talk about the effect of inflation and what potentially a cost of a college education would be in the year, you know, 2025. And and sometimes it scares people. It, it, the, the concept, whether or not it's true or not, you know, the concept of, of that the money's not going to be enough scares people to maybe make some irrational decisions now. Do you find that? I, 
that's a tough one, honestly. I would hope that if, if that were the motivation, that they would be much more conservative in their approach because they would feel that they needed the money longer term. And the way to do that would be to invest so as to preserve capital as opposed to investing so as to make capital. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, that's it's kind of an interesting... Uh, Bill, you've seen that. You've point. seen that, that whole... That whole thing play out, where where they they you know, you'll see economists take uh, the last fifteen years worth of inflation, and sometimes they'll take periods of time where inflation was extremely high, and try to interpolate that into the future for their own benefit, and it, and you know basically scaring the individual that that things are going to be a lot tougher than maybe they really will be. Well, absolutely, and and as you know, Larry, in in our business, we see that all the time, and, and the interpretation of the data, as Chris said. Um, is, is critical because, you know, we see these short-term decisions or we see what decisions are made that we, we look at as a short-term decision when somebody has, you know, a, an injury and they have 30 or 40 or 50 years of life expectancy remaining and they need this money to pay for medical bills for a long period of time. You know, we sit here, we talk about rational economic man, we sit here and we think, okay, we can put together an annuity package that's going to make sure, according to life care professionals, that this person is covered for the rest of their life for their medicals. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a very rational decision. And yet, we see people take that money and play play with it in the stock market, mm-hmm. or take it to a broker, or try and you know do other things with it, or spend the money and squander it. I mean, we talked a little bit about that in our first show. How many times we see a multi-million dollar settlement that's geared towards you know a long-term future payment, and four years later. There's no money left. You know, you know, Doctor Coyne, the the concept of of uh, what I call the rational thought, oftentimes is led. You know, people get led to that by test. I call it testimonial. It's a testimonial yeah. kind of thing that yeah. if you can show where other people have yeah. done what you are thinking of well, doing, you know, and either making mistakes or doing the yeah. right thing, that people tend to gravitate towards towards that. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not the only guy out there doing it. Well, you raised a couple really interesting issues. Let me just talk quickly about two of them. Um, I just saw something in my, I live in Delaware, and and I saw something recently in my newspaper. 61% of the people who are polled believe they are above average drivers. Mm -hmm. Well, how can 61% be above average? (laughs) That that doesn't make sense. That's absolutely impossible. It's an issue of overconfidence. This is exactly what I was pointing to. People believe that they are better than others in, in just about anything. So you have to deal with that overconfidence issue. And, again, that's one of the outputs of, of the behavioral studies that, that you have here. Um, so, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with that. Uh, in, in terms of, of the, uh, the other issue, um, you know, people feel that they're going to be able to manage the money better than somebody else. There's also a study that I saw recently that indicated we're hardwired to mimic behavior that we see in others. That's true. That so if, true. If, if you can get to somebody and say others have done this, because of this mimicking behavior that's part of our makeup, you're probably going to be more successful in accomplishing whatever it is you're trying to do. You know, so you're absolutely right. Yeah, a simple example of that is I was talking to a lawyer about structuring uh, his fees. 
And it was a new concept to him, and uh, I understand that. And I was chatting with him about it and giving him some of the pros and cons. And his reaction was, you know, measured. But when I said, you know, look at these 17 guys I've just done fees for in the last year and a half. Right. Wow. That, that, that made all the difference. Yep. All the difference. He was, he was part of a, uh, of a trend, and he wasn't just going to be the, you know, the lone eagle. That's a very important piece of it, I think. You're absolutely right. And as I said, the interesting feature about this is, and uh, you know, what they did, they did it with more with physical events, like smiling at somebody and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there is this hard wiring. This, this is innate to humans to mimic behavior, to be part of that group. Yeah. So it is something that exists. Yeah. Well, that's all part of what we call behavioral finance. Bill, I think one of the things that uh, you had suggested is maybe we have another show uh, to wrap all these issues around. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think, Larry, that, that you know, what we, what we discussed in our first show, which was you know, personal injury victims as that unique investor class and, and, and the issues that they had to deal with, whether, whether it was preservation of the capital or, or maxima, maximization of wealth, you know, that was a very um, interesting topic, especially when it regards to, to personal injury victims. Mm-hmm. The more Chris and I and you started to talk about this, the whole area of behavioral finance came in, and, and you know that's pretty much what we discussed today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a growing area. It, it, as Chris said, it's taking a lot more attention in the financial circles, both academically and professionally. And I think what we need to do, if you'll allow and if our listeners will allow in our, in our next show, is to kind of bring all that together, You know, bring that unique investor class, the, the wealth maximization versus preservation of capital, the behavioral aspects of financial decision and bring that right back to the personal injury victims and, and, and what they deal with, how they go through their decision-making process, uh, and how we can help that process. And well, uh, and I think if, if that kind of a show can help our listeners be more effective in talking to their own clients, ta- trying to make the de- help them make the decisions that, that are more rational in time, uh, that would be a good thing, and I think that's a good idea. Absolutely. So we'll we'll look into that, and uh, we'll be back we'll be back together again, hopefully in a little warmer weather. So uh, listen, Chris, any final thoughts that you might have? I uh, I guess I'm looking forward to the next one. It sounds interesting. Well, it, it sure will be. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you, Doctor Coin, to get into any of these uh, issues such as uh, net present value and some of those other things you talked about, how would they how would they reach you? Uh, they can either email me at C-C-O-Y-N-E at S-J-U dot E-D-U. And my phone number there is 610-660-1668. If they just leave a message, I'll be happy to get back to them. Great. Bill, how about yourself? Uh, Larry, our, our phone number here in Philadelphia is 1-800-869-9450. And uh, email is probably the preferred method today for me. It's B Wakeley B-W-A-K-E-L-E-E at com. Okay, and, of course, you can reach all of the Ringler Associates at ringlerassociates.com. Of course, if you want to reach me, Larry Cohen, you can always call my office, 978-974-9922, and I'll be sure to lead you in the right direction. But in the meantime, uh, I think we've had a a really interesting show here on this behavioral finance subject. Uh, It's kind of an interesting topic that probably we don't talk about quite a bit, uh, and I'm glad we did today. So in, in a nutshell, let's just say thanks for listening. I'm Larry Cohen once again. Go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. 
Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. 